Tonight on Huckabee, award-winning political scientist Dr. Carol Swain, conservative activist Ned Ryan, the clean comedy of Jeff Jenna, country trio by Gatlin Brothers. Straight Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Welcome, everybody. We have a great show lined up for you, a terrific audience here in our theater. We hope you will come and join us one of these days and make a vacation plan just to come and be part of our studio audience. Now, for those of you who love politics, you don't have to wait until 2022 for some big political drama and major elections. September 14th could be an election that will deliver a Cat 5 hurricane, a 10 on the Richter scale earthquake, and an F5 tornado all in the same day. What is that? It's the date of the California election to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. I recently spent a few days out there in the crazy fornia. Uh, working with the campaign to recall him, and I traveled the state from top to bottom. Now, while I was there, I was asked why it even mattered to me since I don't live there. Well, first, there is my personal disgust with someone who wears the title governor, but who abuses the trust that he was given by acting in hypocrisy and hubris. As someone who was a governor for nearly 11 years, I am appalled if someone believes that being governor is equivalent to being a king and who arrogantly imposes rules on others that he himself doesn't apply to himself. Because you see, no true leader, yeah. No true leader asks others to do what he's unwilling to do. So after imposing strict mass requirements on gatherings, closing restaurants for indoor dining, he hobnobbed with maskless swells at the most expensive restaurant in California, a place called the French Laundry. Rules for thee, but not for me, has been his motto in practice. So I figure maybe it's time that California voters send the guy who dined at the French Laundry, send him to the cleaners. That would be a great bye-bye. But there is another reason that what happens in California matters to me, and it should matter to you as well. It's long been said that whatever starts in California becomes a trend across the country, whether it's trends in entertainment, fashion, language, music, or even politics. I mean, the same state that gave us Jerry Brown and Gavin Newsom also gave us Ronald Reagan. But California holds distinction as the most important agricultural state in the nation. The farmers and ranchers of California, mostly in the San Joaquin Central Valley, supply over 17% of the entire nation's agri products and produces over 400 different commodities. It truly is the salad bowl of the world. 
And yet the overreaching taxes and the idiotic regulations and restrictions that California farmers and ranchers live with, along with the lack of leadership in ensuring a stable water supply, means that it costs a whole lot more to grow and harvest food in California than anywhere else in the country. And that means that a man in Mississippi standing on a concrete floor all day long, lifting heavy things and sweating through his clothes, will go home bone-tired, sit at his dinner table with his wife and kids, and the cost of the food on his table cost way more than it should. And California politics are to blame for that. Now, you might live in one of the other 49 states beyond California, but you are directly affected by the nutty policies that are imposed in California when you buy food, fuel, or for that matter, even footwear. And now Gavin Newsom's California has really gone too far. They want to impose strict limits on how many pigs or chickens can be kept in a space because California wants pigs and chickens to have more space. So the same state that turns a blind eye to homeless people packing into a public park or a business district and who doesn't believe that we ought to control the border and limit illegal immigration, wants to make sure that Porky Pig and Foghorn Leghorn have room to roam. Go <laughs> figure. You know what that means? That means bacon prices are likely to increase by as much as 50%. It was bad enough that Gavin Newsom was a gun grabber and that he shut down churches but not strip clubs. But now he's really done it. He's messed with the price of bacon. And folks, where I come from, them are fighting words. And that is a food fight for sure. So I felt pretty good that even liberals in California would vote to get Gavin Newsom's noose off their necks. But now I'm really confident. On September the 14th, Voters will be able to tell Gavin Newsom to maybe hear what my pastor often said. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. <laughs> While California's abhorrent policies are stealing from the dinner table, 50-year-old ivory tower ideology is tearing apart the family room in the form of critical race theory. Now, you may have heard that term in the media lately, critical race theory, but maybe you didn't know what it really means. My first guest tonight is a highly respected academic and author, and she's here to break down what it really is, how to spot it, and more importantly, how to stop it. She's coming up right after the break, and I urge you, do not miss it. MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. Well, I hope you saw my comments a few weeks ago about the COVID vaccine, but if you didn't, please go to our YouTube channel and watch it. I joyfully had the vaccine after carefully considering the risk of the vaccine 
versus the more serious risk of the China virus. Now many levels of government and private businesses, they're not just encouraging it, they're demanding vaccinations. And sometimes without any regard to whether a person has natural antibodies from having had COVID or maybe having a medical or religious reason not to take the shot. So there's a national effort called Walkout Wednesday. It's scheduled for this coming Wednesday, August 11th, in which people who object to a forced shot will simply walk away from the job or classroom at noon, whatever your local time zone would happen to be. All done as a peaceful protest against forced vaccinations. Now, of course, one way to prevent from being forced to take the vaccine, do it voluntarily after you've discussed it with your doctor and determined that it lessens your risk of severe symptoms or perhaps death. But I still believe it's your choice. It's not mine to make. And if you want more info on Walkout Wednesday, you can check out their website. It's right there on your screen. Well, I want you to imagine how tough a life this would be. A father dropped out of school in the third grade and a mother dropped out in high school. Little girl is one of 12 children. She had to share two beds in the dirt floor shack that she lived in that didn't even have running water. She didn't have proper shoes, so if it snowed, she just had to skip school. She herself dropped out of school in the ninth grade, got married at the age of 16, and had three kids by the time she was 21. She worked at McDonald's for all of a half day, one half day. Didn't that work out too well? But then she decided she wanted a better life, so she got a GED. She went on to a community college, then graduated magna cum laude from Roanoke College, got a master's degree from Virginia Tech, and a PhD in political science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, then a master of legal studies from Yale. She's taught at Princeton and Vanderbilt universities. If I've ever known someone who defied expectations and refused to be a victim, it's our first guest, a dear friend, a true American hero, and one of the most dynamic people in the country. I want you to welcome Dr. Carol Swain. You brought your fan club with you. Uh, I don't know why anybody wouldn't love you. You know, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that people understood your story, because those who say that uh, if a person is a person of color, they ain't got a shot in this country. Your story proves them wrong. Well, I wasn't raised to see myself as a victim. Hmm. And despite that poverty, my mother just, I mean, she had that Protestant work ethic at the time, that I was growing up in the rural South, she uh, did not want us to take handouts. And I had people that came into my life and encouraged me. And I got a high school equivalency. I went to a community college and got the first of five degrees. I never sought to become a university professor. My only goal was to get a better job. Huh. I've worked in fast food. I've worked in nursing homes. I've sold things from door to door. I've been a sales clerk. I've had a real life, and that's why I have common sense, and I understand America. <laughs> well, there's no doubt about the common sense, and no doubt you understand America. You've written a book called Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House. We hear 
every day, critical race theories being pushed in schools. For the average person out there who hears that term but doesn't know what it means, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you, too, why I wrote that book, and it's co-authored with a young man that started off as a research assistant for me, mm -hmm. has a Ph.D. from Georgetown. He's Christian, he's a Marine, and, um, and conservative, which means it would be very difficult for him to get a job as a professor. <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement, I'm sure. Well, I mean, yeah. it's true, yeah. and I'm hoping that this book will help change his life. Yeah. But I had so many people contacted me about critical race theory and how to fight back against it. Uh, critical race theory has Marxist roots. It's rooted in Marxism. And it is a very divisive um, philosophy that started on university campuses and law schools in the 1970s. And it then it permeated every field of the universities and rested in departments of education. And so most of the teachers that are coming out of schools of ed they are steeped in critical race theory. And it divides the world into oppressors and the oppressed. And white people in America are labeled as oppressors because of the color of their skin. And minorities are all seen as victims. And, and that is uh, something that I, I argue in that book. The book explains what critical race theory is, where it came from and who some of the early pioneers of critical race theory and its roots to Marxism. And we also talk about how it's un-American, how it runs counter to our Constitution and civil rights laws. And I have two chapters on strategies to fight back against it. And so critical race theory is a racist uh, theory. Uh, white people may not know it, but you're protected by the Civil Rights Act. <laughs> <laughs> there are probably a lot of people that don't know that. They think it is only for people of color, but it's for everybody, isn't it? It is for everybody, and you're also protected by the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. <laughs> well, now, when you say that, <laughs> how is it that people's basic fundamental civil rights are being violated by critical race theory and its implementation? You know, what's really interesting to me is that Congress is full of lawyers, right? At one time, yeah, it was like 40% of members yeah. of Congress were lawyers. And so they should know the Constitution, they should know civil rights laws, uh, and they should know what it means to be an American. And in America, we don't shame and bully people because of the color of their skin. We know that that's not something that Americans do. Yet with critical race theory, white people are being told that it is acceptable for their children to be bullied, to be shamed. And uh, we find the situation where hostile workplaces Hostile and hostile learning environments are being created. And again, that's unacceptable. It's something that people should push back against. And I don't understand how with so many learned people hmm. running our country that they would try to pull this over on the American people. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. taught us to disregard people's color and focus on character. We're totally savaging that, and now it's all about color and nothing about character. It seemed like it just happened that fast. Well, it did, and it started with the election of President Obama, and that's when we saw the Marxism begin to just um, uh, take over the college campuses. It was always there, but then after that, you saw the political correctness, the safe spaces, the trigger warnings, 
and the various manifestations. Uh, and then we saw it uh, seep into the K through 12. And the diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, the, they call it educational equity, culturally sensitive learning, all of those things uh, began during the Obama administration, the restorative justice. And restorative justice on its face, just like social justice that you know is in the churches, mm -hmm. it's, it's among the Southern Baptists, all of those things, you know, they have nice sounding names and the, the words don't mean what they meant, you know, like even three years ago. They keep changing the meanings of words. And so um, these things have happened. They've taken root. And it's something that we have to understand. And so knowledge is power. We have a constitution. We have free speech. Mm. We have a declaration of independence. And we need to reread those documents and stand on our values and principles. Well... Thank you for helping <laughs> us you. do that. And you can follow Dr. Swain on Twitter, at Carol M. Swain. Also through her website, BeThePeopleNews.com. Make sure you educate yourself by picking up Dr. Swain's new book, Black Eye for America. Dr. Swain, thanks Thank so much you so for your much. insight. And uh, it's just a joy having you here. Right now, Keith Bilbrey, he's going to do a little educating. He's going to educate us on what we have coming up tonight. Well, get ready to laugh as you learn on In Case You Missed It. And later, the Gadlin brothers talk about cancel culture. You're watching Huckabee. Welcome back. We come back to the wonderful music of Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. We always like to call attention to how great they are, yes, and they are. Absolutely. Once again, thank you. From rerun crazed old men to a canned raccoon, hey, we got the news for you that'll have you fighting to get out of here on In Case You Missed It. TheSmokingGun.com reports that two roommates at an assisted living facility in Clearwater, Florida, got into a fight over what to watch on their TV. Reruns of Monk are cartoons. Now, this sounds like a rerun of The Odd Couple. The Monk fan, Glenn Hutchinson, allegedly hit his roommate over the head with a cane. Oh, no. Yeah. Caned him. Now, they should have turned on TCM and watched The Cane Mutiny. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they didn't like that one. <laughs> Hutchinson claimed his roommate attacked him first by driving into his leg with his motorized scooter. That'll get your dander up every oh, time. Oh, every yeah. time. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like they'd both been watching too many Tom and Jerry cartoons, honestly. <laughs> Neither man was seriously injured, but Hutchinson got charged with aggravated battery with a deadly weapon and jailed in lieu of a $5,000 bond. Man. And reports say that his roommate was charged with hit and rerun. <laughs> now, the good news is the jail has a TV. Yeah. Bad news is Hutchinson's cellmate likes cartoons. Oh. 
Can you imagine that? I mean, this is one for the ages. Yeah. Two guys in an assisted living center. They need some assistance, don't they? Yeah, I'd be dangerous with one of those scooters. I bet you would. <laughs> I'm glad you reminded me of that. I'm not going to let you get one. I've decided. No way. Hey, Keith, do you know how to make everybody happy when you're watching TV? Turn on this show. I that That's the ticket that right there. I put you on this show. That. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, I've got opinions, but have I ever hit you over the head with them? Well, not physically. Okay. But well, there you go. Right, Trey? Yeah. I might take a mic stand or something and swing at you, but I wouldn't do that. Any more questions. <laughs> Next up, humans and animals go head-to-head -to, -head to find out who is dumber. First up, competing for the animals, we have this raccoon in Pomona, New York, that was so intent on eating something out of a tin can from someone's garbage, the little raccoon got his head stuck in the can. Mm -mm. Now, an officer kept trying to yank the can off, but it was stuck so tight, he just kept throwing the poor raccoon for a loop over <laughs> and over. I mean, he looked more like Rocky the Flying Squirrel than Rocky Raccoon. Finally, the cop grabbed it with the tail on one end, pulled the can off the other end, and it was free. <laughs> Probably to go do it again if I know raccoons. Watch this. Oh, wow. Did he not fly off there or not, huh? I hope he's been vaccinated. I, I hope he has, too. <laughs> Are you talking about the raccoon or the... the uh, uh, either uh, one. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> now, competing for the human team, we have the ca cameraman at the Tokyo Olympics. He was covering women's field hockey between Spain and Argentina. But he must have found that his, maybe that was as exciting as I would because he became transfixed by a cockroach that wandered onto the field. And when the director tried to cut to his camera shot, viewers saw the cockroach instead of the game. <laughs> <laughs> that clip racked up over 5 million views on Twitter. Wow. Which is more than the entire Olympics so far. <laughs> wow. Well, maybe we ought to try it on this show. Maybe. Show the cockroaches. Yeah. Anyway, the cockroach is now one of the biggest stars to come out of the Tokyo Games. He's been called the first athlete to represent anthropods. Unfortunately, he was disqualified from women's field hockey for having an unfair advantage, six legs. <laughs> but, Keith, you'll love this. In an unexpected twist, it was able to get reinstated by identifying as a woman. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, I've, I've felt for years that anthropods were not correctly identified on the Olympics. Well, now they are. They could have a whole category, anthropods. Anthropods in the Olympics, why not? Well, and now from Hingham, Massachusetts, the head-to-head -head tiebreaker, who was squirrelier? The squirrel that ran directly in front of a teenage driver or the teenager who swerved to miss the squirrel and drove right through the front wall of a historic house built by Abraham Lincoln's great-grandfather? Oh. Now, that house stood for nearly 400 years before it met the number one most destructive force of nature, a teenager with a car. Ooh. Very destructive. Ooh. Well, I can't tell who won, but I think all of us who had to listen to these stories definitely lost this round. And I'm thinking I'd better wrap this up before our cameramen start looking for bugs to take pictures of and put on the show. <laughs> You've given them an idea. I know it. But until next time, always remember, we read the news. So you don't have to. Up next, Ned Ryan remembers the days of American grit and determination. Plus, comedian Jeff Jenna performs. There's a lot more tonight on Huckabee.
Samaritan's Purse has made it their mission to reach the least of these, and they've made an incredible impact all over the world. But it's not just because of their efforts. It's because of your efforts. It's because of your prayers and your generosity. I hope you'll call Samaritan's Purse or go to their website. Go today and see how you can give to the least of these. Thank you, and God bless you. My next guest is a respected author, commentator, and conservative activist. He's got a brand new book, and it's all about how the original fight against tyranny right here in America and the brave colonist who lit the fuse of the American Revolution. And he says the story of Bunker Hill in particular is a story for all time. Please welcome to the show, Ned Ryan. Good to have you here, Ned. Thank you. Uh, great to be here. I, uh, I, I think our audience might know you through your dad, and I know you get this a lot. It's sort of like I'm known as Sarah's dad. That's right. But you're also known as Jim Ryan's son, the That's famous right. Olympian. We're That's in right. the middle of the Olympics right yeah. now. And so uh, runner for Kansas, first high school student ever to break the four-minute right. mile. Three-time Olympian, so, world record holder in the mile. Pretty impressive, and a great Extremely. guy. Went to Congress. Got the Presidential Medal of Freedom last year from President Trump. Wonderful. And, uh, just an incredible man, uh, noble man. And, and I agree with you on all of that. But you know what? He raised a pretty good son. Ned, you've turned out Thank all you. right. And this book is, is kind of a surprising story that we don't really hear much about. You focus a lot in this book on Dr. Joseph Warren. And yeah. I got to tell you, that's a head scratcher for me. Who was this guy? So Joseph Warren, in his first inaugural address, Ronald Reagan called him one of the greatest of the founding fathers. And people don't know the story of Dr. Joseph Warren in part because on the day of Bunker Hill, had to borrow a musket, had to borrow a horse, rides to Bunker Hill. Sounds like a Democrat. He's borrowing everything from... Goes to fight, uh, goes to fight and says, put me where the fighting's the heaviest. You have to understand, he was really? 34 at the time. He had been president of provincial Congress. He had just been made major general in the new colonial army. He didn't have to fight. Yeah. Put me where the fighting's the heaviest. He fights that day and on the retreat out of, out of the earthen redoubt, uh, he's killed uh, covering the American retreat. Mm. And, and people have said, in fact, one of his enemies said, if... if Joseph Warren had not died that day, we might never have heard of George Washington. This man was a spectacular, singular man. Mm. So the, the book does focus on Joseph Warren, but it also focuses on some of the bigger themes. Why did Englishmen, 85% of Massachusetts yeah. at the time, was English, direct English lineage. Why did English start shooting at each other? And people say it was the Stamp Act, it was the Tea Act, but really it was about the fundamentals of who makes the laws, who governs, where are these laws drawn from? And the colonists truly believed that they had, transcend they had rights given to them by a transcendent creator. Mm. And they believed that those rights, since no earthly power had given them, no earthly power could revoke them. And so they considered these ideas sacrosanct, and Parliament and the King's ministers at the time said, no, we think these are more of a series of suggestions. You'll do what we say, you will comply, and if you don't, we'll send more troops, we'll send more warships. And Joseph Warren and Sam Adams and John Hancock and Paul Revere said, we don't think so. We believe these rights are worth fighting for, and so they fought. I mean, our country, the story of it really is an overthrow of tyranny, an overthrow of overreach that's of right. authority. It's, it's principle defiance in the face of authoritarianism. And that's why I said Bunker Hill is a story for all time, because yeah. it really is human nature. What do we do when we are confronted with authoritarianism? What do we believe about rights? And I think this is a big conversation for us as an American people. Where do our rights come from? And if we truly believe that our yeah. rights come from a transcendent creator mm -hmm. and government doesn't give them, I mean, that changes the entire conversation about what's taking place in this country today. But we're living in a time when even the mention of God in the public square is considered out of bounds. We shouldn't be talking about God. But we, I, I think what you're saying is 
we can't talk about America without talking you about can't, God. You can't, because the, the, the founders of the free American Republic truly believed in this transcendent creator. It's in our declaration, right? That, that we believe that these rights given to us, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, were created by a creator who gives us these rights. And that's the basic premise of the free American Republic. And so there's a reason that those on the other side of the debate really don't want to talk about transcendent rights because then you have to talk about a creator. And I always say they might start to think there might be other obligations to a creator who gives us our rights. You know, it sounds like that uh, the book, The Adversaries, might be kind of timely for what we're going through because we, we are seeing a level of tyranny where the government is telling us, you can't go to church. You can't go to that store. You will wear this mask. On and on it goes. And I begin in the, the, in the author's note saying, history done well is like the wind at our backs. And I wrote mm. this book in a certain style because I wanted history to be approachable. Yeah. I wanted people to be able to read it and understand, but at the same time to be inspired. History done well should inspire us into action. At the same time, I wanted people to understand these men were facing real threats to their lives, to their livelihood. When Joseph Warren gave the fifth anniversary speech in the Old South Meeting House, March 6, 1775, it was in front of 5,000 Bostonians, but it was also in front of 30 or 40 British officers who were armed, who would come, there were rumors, they would assassinate anyone who gave that, that talk that day. Mm. And he still spoke with boldness and determination about freedom, about what their rights were. These, they were confronted with real danger and they still did the right thing because they believed so strongly in their rights, and, and they believed, not only did they believe they had a right, they also believed they had an obligation to defend those rights. I think that's what makes this message so powerful because a lot of people are afraid, just right. afraid to speak out. Ned, I appreciate what you're doing with Thank the book. You. I also appreciate what you're doing with American Majority to Thank get you. people elected to school board, city council, it's all the way action. up to uh, Congress. That's where we change the country. Right. And uh, thanks. Thanks Thank for your time you. tonight. The book is called The Adversaries, a story of Boston and Bunker Hill. It's available right now. And I'll tell you, we could all use a good reminder of the spirit that made this country so very great. Keith Bilbrey, why don't you tell us what makes our show really great tonight? Because I know you know well, I'll tell you, the hilarious comedy of Jeff Jenna. And after that, the Gatlin brothers are with us. Don't go away. Next week, Lily Tang Williams tells us how she survived Mao's murderous revolution in China. Well, have you ever felt like going to Hollywood and then realized that you couldn't deal with the pomp and the policies? Well, I got a solution for you. This little town has all the perks of Hollywood and then some without the downside of being in the same state as Governor Gavin Newsom. Yeah. <laughs> Keith Bilbrey is going to tell you why the Hollywood of Oklahoma is our kind of town. Well, okay. Oklahoma, that is, and along with folks from all over the world, we're visiting Guthrie, where you can learn all about Oklahoma history and have fun at the same time. Now, in the beginning, Guthrie was no more than a prairie stop on the railroad, but thanks to the land run in 1889, it became a city of 10,000 overnight. 
Guthrie was named the first capital of Oklahoma, and that thriving center of commerce and early statehood now makes up one of the largest historic districts in the country. The walkable downtown is the perfect getaway to relax, take a break from the stresses of life, and enjoy the hospitality of a vibrant community that loves to show off their down-home charm. Take in some live theater, delicious world-class meals that will make you want to change your zip code. Stay at one of a long list of delightful bed and breakfast and inns. And don't worry about getting back in the car, because the coffee roasters, chocolatiers, bakeries, boot makers, and more, everything you need is right around the corner. Guthrie is known as the Hollywood of Oklahoma, with its unique blend of old and new architecture Guthrie has been a desired backdrop for dozens of movie productions and TV shows. Now, no trip to Guthrie would be complete without the rip-snorting action and excitement of rodeo. And the town goes completely wild when it hosts the International Finals Rodeo. Now, that's big, y'all. Oh, and for something completely different, Guthrie is the home to the smallest national park in the country. How small? Well, we're talking a whopping 100 square feet of scenic, natural grandeur. Great for sightseeing, but I wouldn't plan on that camping trip just yet. There's no place to immerse yourself in the charm and history of a one-of-a-kind community that has something for everyone than Guthrie, Oklahoma. And that's why it's our kind of town. Well, our thanks to the city of Guthrie, the Guthrie Chamber of Commerce and the Oklahoma Historical Society for letting us explore their great little town. Sounds like a fun place to go. And be sure to go to GuthrieOK.com so that you can plan the best trip you've had all year right there in Guthrie, Oklahoma. Jeff Jenna is one of the most played comics on all of Sirius XM Radio. And he's appeared on over 50 national TV shows, including The Dennis Miller Show and Comedy Central. His new dry bar comedy special is called Old Dog, New Jokes. Would you please welcome the very funny Jeff Jenna. Oh, thank you so much for applauding until I got to the circle. Because if you stop before I get to the circle, those last few steps are really awkward. It's like, oh, it's Jeff Dunham. No, it's Jeff Allen. No, it's, who's that guy? Uh, my name is Jeff Jenna. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for having me here, Governor. It's my first time on the Huckabee Show. I am excited about being here. I'm excited about being anywhere because I didn't work for over a year because of the COVID. At least that's what I've been telling my wife. And... But in my year at home, I've learned a lot of things. Listen to this, I learned this, that given the right motivation and determination, any size pizza can become a personal pizza. <laughs> I bought a new car who, that has an amazing anti-theft device on it. It keeps my millennial son from taking my car. It's called a clutch. Older people applauding, younger people going, what did he say? What was that word? <laughs> my son, actually, I have one son. His name is Miles. Miles is my son, if I talk about him. Unless I'm in Canada and he's kilometers. 
he, uh, he just graduated from college, and he's finally off the payroll. Well, almost. And, uh, but he's, he's a great kid. But he said this the other day, and it just, it just stunned me when he came home and said this. He came home and went, man, I am so happy all the hard stuff in life is now over. <laughs> like, well, apparently, they didn't teach you enough at that college you went to. Because soon, you're going to meet my good friend's rent and car payment. And when you turn 26, their friend health insurance will show up. Uh, we had a great uh, Christmas at my house this year. Uh, my wife, oh, my wife gave me the Fitbit for Christmas. Anybody wearing the Fitbit besides me? Yeah. It's a nice gift, but imagine how that gift would have gone the other way. Now, here, put that on, Chunky. Oh, oh, honey, that's my eye. I made the mistake of wearing my Fitbit to bed the other night. I woke up in the morning, already had 2,600 steps. Yeah, older guys get that joke. Keep laughing. If you can go for about another three minutes, I'm covered. My son's a great kid. He really is. He's a musician. He's got his own band. Uh, they're a fantastic band. Uh, but unfortunately, he's gotten a lot of gifts from his mother's. He's got good looks. He's got a lot of hair. He's got musical talent, all which I don't have. For me, he got a really nasty sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. The other day, I come home, and my wife parks on the right side of the garage. I park on the left side. I pull into my space in the garage. Right there is one of those fake, real signs, you know, and like, they look like a street sign, but they're not. It's made out of metal, and it looks beautiful, and it says, this space reserved for the world's greatest dad. I'm like, oh. I start to get out of the car, he opens the door and goes, that's not your spot. <laughs> uh, he's just about to turn 23, and for the first time in his life, I am in charge of the birthday party this year. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have some cake and ice cream. We're gonna give him the present, and it's gonna be over! <laughs> over! Think back now, remember, like when my son turned one, my wife was in charge of the birthday party. In fact, we got in a big argument about the first birthday. And she's screaming at me across the room. It's like, it's important that we have his friends over. I'm like, baby, he's one. He doesn't know his own friends. I'm out of the house for three hours. He don't know me when I come back in. Now, I don't have to tell anybody who won this argument, do I? We ended up spending $1,800 on a birthday party for a one-year-old. See, I thought my idea was much better. This is my idea. I said, we take him to the county fair, put him on a pony, have his picture taken. I take the picture home, I throw it in a drawer, and I wait. Five, 10, 20 years from now, he will find that picture someday, and he will come to me, his father, and he'll go, Dad, what was this? And I'll say, son. That was your first birthday. <laughs> when I bought you a pony. <laughs> we used to ride him all around the neighborhood. Then one day I went out of town, your mom didn't take care of me, Dad. <laughs> Listen, you guys have been fantastic. Thank you so much for enjoying me on the Huckabee Show tonight. I had a great time being here, thank you. I kind of wanted a pony, too. I guess that's probably why I didn't have one. They didn't even have a camera to take the picture at the county fair. It is great having you here. 
You do all kinds of comedy, but the uniqueness is it's clean comedy. Right. I, I, I love doing clean comedy. In fact, I'm working coming up in some... There's some clubs that are springing up around America that are, feature only clean comedy. There's two of them that I'll be working at called Gutties. One's hmm. in Greenwood, Indiana, which is just south of Indianapolis. Yeah. And one is in... It's just getting ready to open. It's in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I'll be in Minneapolis in November and in Greenwood in December. Now, you do a lot of corporate events and things all over the country, I know, where people just need to laugh, they need entertainment. Uh, is it still something you love to get out there and hear the laughter of the crowd? You know what? I, I, sometimes I feel like George Patton, you know, when he's <laughs> standing in front of the battlefield and he goes, God help me, I love it so. <laughs> and uh, that's the way I feel. Even though I'm pushing 70, it's like I still love doing it and I still love having people laugh. It's, it's the sound that keeps you young. Well, you keep us young by laughing this way. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us some great laughs here tonight. And after those In Case You Missed It stories earlier, we really needed your comedy, <laughs> that is for sure. Hey, keep an eye out for where Jeff Jenna is going to be performing later this year. And also look up his Dry Bar Comedy Special, A Hoot, Old Dog, New Jokes. You can get that at drybarcomedy.com. Hey, Keith, I know we've already had a great show tonight, but we're not done. How are we going to finish this off? Oh, Larry, Steve, and Rudy, the Gatlin Brothers grace our stage next. Stay with Huckabee. Welcome back. We have a great treat. Larry, Steve, and Rudy, the Gatlin brothers, they've been performing together for almost as long as they've been alive, like 65 years. Now, some of them might tell you for as long as they've been alive. Their career has been filled with well-deserved highs, including several number one hits, a Grammy Award, and numerous ACM nominations. But there have also been a few unexpected lows. And as you can see by the shirt that Larry has wearing tonight, they have never taken the lows lying down. So to talk about all of their incredible career as well as their run-ins with cancel culture, I want you to welcome some of our very favorites, the Gatlin Brothers. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're excited thank you. to have you guys here. Thank you. Thank and, you. And, Larry, you and I have particularly talked about the whole world of cancel culture, how if you disagree with somebody who's in power, they don't want to just disagree with you. They want to put you out of business, shut you up, and get rid of you, never to be heard from again. People won't let songs be heard. We have trouble, even on this show, getting clearances for songs. Mm, right. And the I publishers believe. will say, no, we don't want it to be on the Huckabee show. Absolutely. Well... Uh, I, this is kind of in, in jest. I believe we all matter, and I'm going to address that a little bit uh, later in a song. Uh, in the 18th century, the uh, a Scottish philosopher, uh, Lord Andrew Fletcher of Saltoun, he said, Saltoun, Scotland, S-A-L-T-O-U-N. That's, I'm not, that's Saltoun. It's not T-O-O-N. Anyway, T-U-N-E. He said, uh, very mystically, he said, were I able to write the ballads of a nation, were I able to write the songs of a nation, I would care not who wrote its laws. 
Hmm. Folks, if we don't think that Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell and Stephen Stills, if we don't think that those songwriters and entertainers were instrumental in ending the Vietnam War, you're crazy. Of course they did. Yeah. They got young people out in the streets protesting with the music and all of that. Uh, George Frederick Root, uh, uh, 200 years ago, and the lady, woman, girl, female, dear God, we don't know what to call them, <laughs> start out with sweetheart. Uh, <laughs> They wrote a little song that's kind of important. You ready? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. So do Larry, Steve, and Rudy. Yeah. We really do. So uh, songs matter. I, I had, uh, uh, it's okay if I take the credit as long as I give God the glory. Because yeah. the book says, God forbid that I glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ. So I will not take the glory, I'll take the credit. Yeah, I write the songs and I'm grateful for all that. None of that would have happened without these two. They sing, I tell people, when I get the words right, the, the melodies are the easy part. If you get the words right, and by the way, all of the words you need for those songs are in the dictionary. You just got to <laughs> figure it out. What just arrange it in the right way. <laughs> but I hear the harmonies. I hear his low part in my right ear and his high part in my left ear. If it weren't for these two, my brothers who I love and adore and would fight for, uh, none of this would have happened. So give my, my sidekicks another hand. They are well, they're what we're about. I'm glad that all of you, you have been singing and continue to entertain people. And I just want to just wrap it up by reminding folks that if we can't use your songs on TV, then you don't get paid because you get paid when we use those songs. And, and one of the things that has scratched our heads is uh, it, it's really theft from the songwriters and the artists to not be able to use the music that you've written and that's uh, sitting on the shelf for a catalog to be bought. But well, those, maybe those you can people, work on it. The people who are doing that, the cancel people, first of all, I don't know if you can say this. I think they're a bunch of booger-eating morons. <laughs> they're... they're <laughs> Well, you just said it. You just said it. So. <laughs> well, first of all, first of all, what you're doing, Gov. What How you like us so far? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good night. You're, uh, you're you're confusing you're confusing all this with logic. Oh. Uh, no, you don't know, do Dr. That. Alan Bloom said in his his book, The Closing of the American Mind. He said, uh, there's one thing a college professor can be assured of when he or she walks into a classroom and asks the question, is there any such thing as right or wrong? 90% of them will say, no, it's relative. It's relative. Well, guess what, friends and neighbors? Red lights aren't relative. You go up to a red light and just say, that isn't red, that's green. Go ahead and go through that and see how that works out for you. Not you know very well. So they don't care about what's right or wrong. They just, they have the power right now. I just, I think they're going to get There's the, a reckoning. There was a reckoning. I hope so. You know, well, I want our audience to know how to experience the Gatlin's 65 years of music for themselves. So they're going to get ready to perform tonight, which we wouldn't bring them here and not let them perform. Keith is going to tell us how we can get their wonderful music that nobody can keep us from being able to get to. I'd be happy to. Just go to GatlinBrothers.com to find their music, tour schedule, and a whole lot more. And after the show, go to Huckabee.tv for the Gatlin Brothers' online exclusive performance of the Gatlin's 2020 release, Fair Winds. Now, 
here to perform one of their earliest number one hits, All the Gold in California, are Larry, Steve, and Rooney, the Gatlin Brothers! Watch! All the Oh! 